Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget uh, my oldest uh, godson. I was an, uh, Catherine and I got there an hour after he was born to the hospital. And he's now 24 years old, and we were just celebrating his birthday on St. Patrick's Day and around the table, and we always tell him, you know, Matthew, we were there an hour after you were born, which is why I wanted to be here so badly in November when you all launched your church plan. I'll say a little bit more at the announcement time. A very serious illness prevented me from being here with you guys, and that was a massive disappointment to me because I know how special it is to get there right when the baby's born. But I mean, you're not that old yet, right? I mean, can we, can, can I still kind of have gotten in on time with you all? Because to Scott's point, Catherine and I have prayed for this work that God is doing here. We have dreamed of this work with Scott and Marissa and others that were sent from resurrection. We knew that God was going to do something here that is powerful and beautiful and strong and vulnerable and fragile and full of the kingdom of God. And I can see now that already the Lord is profoundly at work. I can just feel it. I can sense it. So let me get into the text in just a minute, but a, a quick word. I, am, I do operate as a bishop within the Anglican tradition, and that isn't always really clear what that means. And I met with some of you as leaders a year ago, and what I said to you then is to try and get your head around what I do. It is actually at one level very simple, and that is that I am a dad. And actually I have a first church, which is my family, and I'm very blessed by what Scott said. And we have invested primarily in our family. That's our first church. That's our prioritized church. We have six kids, two of them in college. And then they go all the way down to uh, Beckett, who's eight years old. So they're quite a spread there. And that's when I've been our first place of investment. I also get to be spiritual father of Church of the Resurrection, which is what's called the Cathedral Church, simply a mother church, a resource church that's committed to planting new churches, like what God is doing here in Madison. And then I also oversee our church planting movement a diocese. And a bishop does a lot of things, but a few key things I do. One is I teach the Bible. And I teach the Bible how the church has taught the Bible over the centuries. So I'm not a free agent. I'm actually under a whole lot of authority myself. I do have a lot of authority, but I operate under a great deal of authority. Also as a bishop, it's also my role in, in my ministry to help multiply churches. Bishops have always helped to start new works and new churches and new initiatives for the sake of Jesus for centuries. And I'm just working off of a very ancient blueprint that's happening throughout the world. I mean, I already got to greet my new Nigerian family. I have a particular love for Nigeria. I'll say a little bit more about Nigeria at the announcement time. But I've, I am a student of Archbishop Benjamin Kawashi, a Nigerian bishop who's taught me about defending the faith, teaching the Bible, and multiplying churches. So I'm just trying to do what other folks have done. That's a little bit about what I do. We'll say a little bit more at the announcement time and a little bit more about what prevented me from coming to you all in November. But I'm here. Catherine wishes she could be here. I was leaving this morning and she was already grieving that she couldn't be here, but she's running rehearsals for an event we have at Resurrection called the Easter Vigil all day. So she'll be here next time. Luke 13, you guys go there. Actually, it was lectionary text. It was, it was teaching text for two weeks ago, but I prayed about being here and talked to Scott about being here. This is what really came back to me again and again. 
And I'd like to just work on this with you. So if you have it open, we will work through it and, and, and talk through it. But before we talk through it, I want to start with a story. As a matter of fact, what Jesus does in this text today is He tells a story. If you're, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching, and I'm going to assume that some of you are very familiar with the teachings of Jesus, and some of you have a background in the teachings of Jesus, but you're getting familiar again, and I'm going to assume some of you are not familiar at all. So I'm going to kind of work off of that possibility in terms of whatever mix is here this morning. But one thing Jesus often does as a teacher is He tells stories. He often puts pictures or kind of creates drama in His stories, and they're called parables. But what's so interesting is if you, if you kind of learn Jesus' way of telling stories, you can also watch parables play out all the time in life. As a matter of fact, if you follow the news over the last couple of weeks, there's been an unbelievable and heartbreaking parable play out in front of us as, the, as, as Americans. It's called the Operation Varsity Blues parable. That's what I'm calling it. It's actually called Operation Varsity Blues. But there was a massive investigation that's been going on now for a very, very long time where police authorities uncovered an incredible scam where dozens of rich, elite American families went to great lengths and went to illegal lengths to make sure that their children got into the most exclusive American schools throughout the country. It's an unbelievable story. If you've missed it, you definitely want to go back and read about it just to understand American culture as those who are interested in the kingdom of God. At the heart of this scam was a man named William Rick Singer. And he was operating as a college consultant, which there's many of those that do their job legally, but he was working a scam as a college consultant, helping to get students into colleges. Parents were paying him upwards of half a million dollars so that he would bribe proctors who would oversee ACT, SAT exams, so he would find just ACE, SAT, ACT test takers, people that you want a 35 out of a 36, or maybe your kid with their background, you've been over a 34 out of a 36. This 30-something Harvard graduate could nail scores on the ACT and the SAT. He was that good. They went so far as to Photoshop the faces of their children on key soccer players or pole vaulters to say, my kid's actually an exceptional athlete. And then they bribed the coaches of these elite institutions, great money, when the kid would know the difference between a forward or a fullback in soccer. Singer, William Rick Singer said, there's three ways into an elite institution. You go through a door. He says it, you go through a door. Go through the front door based on merit. Go through the back door. You have enough wealth to make a significant investment in the endowment of the school. Or there, he said, is my door, the side door. So if you want in, William Reek Singer could get you in. Some will go in the front door. Some go in the back door. But some had to go into the side door. And these parents, they're already in. These are the elite of the American culture. But for whatever reasons, some of them I'm sure charitable, and some of them I'm sure very self-serving, in both cases, they had to make sure that their children were also in, and they would do anything, anything. I mean, these were attorneys who know the American legal system. These were American actors and those of the entertainment industry. I mean, these are people who put and took great risks to get their kids in, to get them in the side door. But before we're too critical or judgmental, right? I mean, don't you want in somewhere? Maybe for you, you're not drawn into being into the elite institutions of the country. Maybe that doesn't draw you. That doesn't mean you don't want in somewhere. 
Maybe you're a subtle I want in person. You know where you want in and you know how you're going to get in and maybe you can get into the front door on your merit. Maybe you can get into the back door and some kind of financial possibility. You may have to go in the side door, but you want in somewhere. You want to be in with certain people. You want to be in with a certain subculture. You want to be in with certain accolades. You want to be in with certain reputation. You want to be in with some kind of inspiration, but you want in. It'd be helpful as we look at Luke chapter 13 right now if you're able to identify in your own heart, where do I want in? What does draw me? Where am I putting my energy and my passion and my strength and my money? You know, you're made to want in. I would say the part of your God-given design is a design and a desire to want to be in. So the fact that you want to get in somewhere isn't in itself sinful. Isn't it in itself rebellious against the design that God made you within? But he made you to get in in one place. And we should have a desire to give everything we have and to do whatever we have to do to get in. But that in is the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, you don't go in the front door and you don't go in the back door and there is no side door. There's one door into the kingdom of God, Jesus teaches in your Luke 13 passage today, and that is the narrow door. It's crazy how that lines up with this contemporary parable of the last two weeks, isn't it? You can get in. As a matter of fact, anybody can get in. You don't need money. It might hurt you more than help you. And you don't need a certain SAT, ACT score. And you don't have to be an amazing pole vaulter. Right? But you do have to get in. And you have to get in through a narrow door. So how, as in the season of Lent, how do we understand that we get in to the kingdom of God? How do you get in? Here's why Jesus is so amazing. He wants to tell us. He's not going to hide it from you. He's not going to make it difficult to understand it. He's going to clarify how you get in. You have to strive to get in. That's the verb he's going to use in his teaching today. And we break into this different Bible teaching passage in Luke 13. You strive for lastness. If you, if you take notes, not everybody likes to take notes. You may just need to listen. Some of you are note takers, some of you are listeners, whatever it is. If you're taking notes, we strive for lastness, verses 22 to 28, to organize the passage some. And we strive for the kingdom, verses 29 to 30. Look where it starts. It tells us that Jesus, that's the he, of course, in verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. This is an important description of what our Lord is doing, but it's also a very intentional direction from Luke who's writing about Jesus' work, telling you he's going toward Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Well, he's going toward Jerusalem because he's going toward the cross. He's going toward his death and his execution. He's going toward what we will come to understand to be the way in which he will save humanity from their sin and rebellion and the way in which they are curved in on themselves. He's going to save humanity from being curved in on itself by going to the cross. When he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to the cross. So this passage starts with the cross of Jesus Christ. If we don't know that's connected to Jerusalem, we would simply think that it's an interesting location component. And not that it's unimportant, 
But it's actually a driving idea here that Luke wants to say he's going toward the cross. He's going toward what we call Holy Week. Someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Wow. It's just such a universal question. We ask that now. They asked it then. Will those who are saved be few? And Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, if that answer frustrates you, you're tracking. If you're like, oh, that's a great answer, you're not tracking. That doesn't make any sense at first. They're asking him, will those be few? He could say, yes, they will be, or no, they won't be. I mean, that would actually be the way that we thought he would answer it. But instead, he gives, not that it won't be clear, he'll get very clear, but he gives kind of a speculative, the question is speculative. The question is, I'm kind of coming out of a philosophical background, very likely, the person is asking. We don't know exactly who asks him. But will those who are saved be few? He calls him Lord. He honors him. It's, a, it's an honor title. It's possibly it's representing a certain school of thinking within the Jewish way. And there were lots of different schools of thinking within Judaism. They were called rabbinical schools or teaching schools. So he may be coming from a certain philosophical perspective within a certain Jewish school. And often this Jewish school argued very strongly that only the Jews will be saved. And actually some schools argued only certain Jews who do certain things, will be saved. So very likely what he's looking for in this rising rabbi, which is how Jesus would be viewed, is he's looking for an affirmation. Absolutely. Only certain Jews will be saved. And you know what? You are one of the special ones that will be saved. It's likely, we're not positive, he's looking for an affirmation of who he is, an affirmation of his identity. Am I good, Jesus? You're good. Don't worry. You have nothing to worry about. And so Jesus says, strive. Wait, 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 wait. You're not affirming me. How dare you not affirm me in my identity? Jesus doesn't seem to be too concerned about always affirming us in our own developed identity. He's very concerned about our identity. He's very concerned about who we are. But he's not going to affirm this person very likely in their identity. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So Jesus answers the speculative with the personal. You see that? He does it all the time. If you're starting to learn Jesus' teaching, Watch Jesus' teaching. Now, theologically, he is more developed than anyone. He was able to deal with the great theological teachers at the age of 12, we're told. But he answers the speculative with the personal. He'll be asked, um, they see a man born blind. Who sinned that this man is born blind, his parents or himself? Jesus won't answer that speculative question either. That's in John 9. He actually does a similar thing. He gets personal. He says, you strive. And that word strive is a personal pronoun. It's just packed in there. You don't see it right away. You strive. It's actually plural. You all strive. So he's just going after this guy. He actually really loves this guy. We can be assured of that. He's going plural. You all strive. So what is strive about? If you come from a background that is a church background, that is more of a conservative Christian background or an evangelical background, and you hear the word strive, Often that could be an exhausting word for us. I, I thought it was about rest. I, I thought that Christianity was about coming into the presence of the Lord. And even, even what happens in this kind of worship is there's an altar and there's music and it's such a relief to come into the presence of the Lord. Now all of a sudden being told to strive, I thought that was the opposite of how things are supposed to work. What does the word strive mean? It's a whole lot less about a heated performance. It's not about a heated performance. It's about a heart posture. That word does not mean strain, which is how in the English our brain goes there, right? 
Instead, it means heart posture. What he's saying in saying strive is go after something with your whole person. It almost sounds like an incredible teaching in the Hebrew Scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, your whole body. That's the idea, Deuteronomy 6, that's imported to strive. Your whole person. What does striving look like? We're going to, I'll do a personal invite. Scott's already invited folks to come down to Resurrection for the Easter Vigil. I'll say more about that. But I understand striving when I watch the children of the church of the resurrection where I get to lead during Holy Week. In Holy Week, we have lots of different services. We do lots of different things. But on Palm Sunday, we celebrate with, with a procession. You guys probably do the same thing. You got palms. And now what happens with our kids with palms is for our kids at resurrection, you know, 250, you know, of, of these little ones running around like insane people. On Palm Sunday, it is time for a party. So they all process in, which is wonderful. But then as the music is going, they just jump up and down for about 15 minutes straight. In the 80s, we called it pogo dancing. It's amazing. And now it's been sanctified in their dance. And they're just all in. Their bodies are in. Their minds are in. They're just so happy that they have palms in their hand. And for those that are tracking, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And they're really happy about that. On Monday, Thursday, we do foot washing. Now, here's the secret. None of the adults like foot washing. It's totally awkward and none of us like it. And I always tell people it's serving. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's serving. I just wish it was over, right? We had a church plant that wanted to do foot washing with a mannequin foot because they just thought that that would be less awkward. I argue that's more awkward to do foot washing with a mannequin foot. It, but, you know, I let my church planters do what they're going to do, you know, contextualization. Okay. But you wash those children foot wash, right? They're all in. You wash. You watch a little boy wash his mom's foot. I mean, he's going for it. He's getting in there in between the toes, and he's, he's rubbing mom's foot. It is, it is amazing. Why? He loves mom. And all of a sudden, he has this one opportunity to, to strive, to be in all body, all heart. They grab hold of the cross. They can go up and pray at the cross on Good Friday. Children, they're stretched out. They're running around on Easter morning, just celebrating Jesus is risen from the dead. That's striving. You understand striving? striving? Understand a childlikeness with a whole heart. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Come in with your whole person. That's what Jesus is saying. But now he's going to do a contrast. But here's what striving looks like, not through the narrow door, what I would call striving for lastness, but he actually starts by saying, here's what striving for firstness looks like, and he tells a story, verses 25 to 27. It's a simple story. It's got three verses in it, and it's a someone visiting a house. The story is simply, someone comes and visits your house. Now, the house has been closed down for the night in many, many countries, it's very important for security that you have a gate around your house. You may have a, a night watch person who's out in front of your house that you close everything down at the end of the night. And that's exactly what's happening here. Someone's closing down the house. There's an owner of the house, Jesus. He, he actually would be the owner of the house in this. And he's not letting them in, the people that are knocking, because apparently they have come too late and he doesn't know who they are. That's the story. There's a master of the house. And people are trying to get in, and they can't come in because they're too late, or he doesn't know who they are. What is happening in this story? Why can't they just get in? But one thing that's happening is in direct context, Jesus is saying to the Jewish people who are all around him, and if you read the context of chapter 13, they're all around him, these Jewish leaders. He's saying, you know what? I don't know 
where you come from. That's in verse 25 and again in verse 27. I don't know where you come from. Oh, my. For the Jewish identity, where you come from, the land from which you've been born within is essential to who you are. Now, that's not the same for us identity-wise. I mean, I'm from Indiana, and I love Indiana, but I don't think about myself first and foremost as a Hoosier, although I love that state. My sense of place is important, but it isn't like this. It isn't like for the Jewish person. To say, I don't know, not, not just I don't know you, to know somebody is to know where they come from within Judaism. I don't know where you come from. In other words, your identity from wherever you are as a Jewish person, that's not enough to get you into the house. Identity and who you think you are and who you are in your background, that will not actually get you in to the narrow door. Okay. Indeed, how do you get into the narrow door? Well, it doesn't have to do with your identity as to who you think you are. It would have much more to do with a childlike heart. It would have to do with a striving, a whole person. So how do you get in? Who does he recognize? Well, you have to come from a different land. We'll get there in just a moment. You have to come from the land of lastness. That's the passport that gets you into the narrow door, the land of lastness. This is not simply a Jewish heart Jesus is confronting. Let's be clear. It is a human heart. The direct context, and it matters very much, is a Judaism background. But it is a human heart. It is a human heart that says, my identity gets me in. It says, my knowledge. You see, they, they even say to him, let's, let's find this here. Uh, verse 26, we ate and drank in your presence. We, you taught in our streets. In other words, we ate and drank in your presence. We have a sense of influence. We have an identity. We have a connection with you. We have an entitlement. We were there when you taught. We were entitled to get into this door. Now we want to come and leverage our entitlement with you. Let us in. Or they say, we know. We, we know your teachings. We heard you teach. We have knowledge. We have identity. We have an entitlement. We have knowledge. Oh, my word. Is that something with our own human heart as well? That isn't it what I know that will get me in? Or is it my influence in some way that will get me in? Or is it my identity, who I am and who I say I am? Doesn't that get me in? And are there all these like, sub-identity clubs set up all over the country? And they're deciding who gets in and who gets out? And it's just more and more diffuse and more and more difficult to get into any identity club? She's saying that's not enough. In understanding the kingdom of God. There's no salvation by who you are alone. There's no salvation by what you know. There's no salvation by who you've been around. Wow. How do you get saved? I mean, that's what this story raises, the question, right? I mean, how do you get saved? A dear, dear friend, he was a spiritual leader in a Christian movement many, many years ago. Known him for over almost three decades. And recently he made a decision to leave his family because he's in a relationship with another woman besides his wife. So people have gone to him gently, lovingly, but they've said, hey, 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 what are you doing? Like, this is not the way of Jesus. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm still following Jesus. Don't get me wrong, man. Don't, don't get confused. I, I'm still a follower of Jesus. I'm just going to follow Jesus and also live contrary to what's been taught by Jesus because it's his identity as he has developed it. It's his identity as he has understood it 
that's his way. It's his knowledge of how he understands the teaching of the Bible as opposed to how the church has understood it, how many have taught it. That's actually his way in. So he can actually leave his family, betray his wife, betray his children, and yet say, I'm still a follower of Jesus. Because he thinks his identity and his knowledge is enough. It happens all the time, and it can happen to each of us. So how do we get in? Look at the the last verse, verse 30. I teach resurrection this all the time. Some of you already know this, but behold is a really important word. When Jesus uses behold, here's part of what he's saying when he uses the word behold. He's saying the next thing that I'm going to say after this, you're not going to get by your own understanding. When I say behold, I'm giving you a clue. It's like a revelation. I'm going to give you something that has got to be revealed to you. It's going to come in from outside of you, and you're not going to understand it at first. It's not going to make sense to you first, but I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of God. Behold, here comes the kingdom. Behold, you won't get there on your own logic. Behold, you won't get there on your own reason. Logic and reason are very important in Christianity, but they will not take you all the way. Behold, he says. Oh, my goodness, what's coming? For those of us who are learning the Bible, we go, whoa, 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 what's coming? Behold, is really important. Some who, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Boom! Now we're right in the center. Now we're right in the center of the good news of God in Jesus. Now we're right in the center of why Jesus came. Behold, some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. Well, we know what the first looks like. He just gave us a picture of that in the story. What's lastness? And if that's the way in the narrow door, how do I get lastness? How do I strive for lastness? How do I understand lastness? Well, there are some presenting symptoms of lastness. When, when you work with a doctor, they'll kind of look at your presenting symptoms. And then there's also a cardinal symptom, like the main symptom. But here are some presenting symptoms of lastness. Here's how you can know if you're walking in lastness, if you're coming into lastness. First of all, do you have a besetting sin that makes you vulnerable? Do you have a besetting sin, a regular sin that makes you vulnerable? where you know you've got this sin. And those that are closest to you, whether you try to hide it or not, might also know. And that besetting sin can look like a thousand different things. I can't prescribe what that is, but I know from the Scriptures that many of us have a besetting, a regular, a cyclical sin. It's a thought pattern sin. It's a bodily sin. It's a heart sin. And it's besetting. And it makes you really vulnerable. Did you know that that qualifies you for lastness? Oh, this is such good news. Did you know that when you have that besetting sin and you'll repent of that besetting sin, that that is your way in? That the brokenness that besetting sin gives you, the, the, the humiliation it gives you, the vulnerability it gives you, if you will take that humility and vulnerability and use it to repent of that sin and go to the Lord yet again and say, I'm sorry, now you're in lastness. Now you're striving like a little kid who says, I am so sorry, Daddy, I lied again. I lied again. That's lastness. That's what lastness looks like. Or maybe this. This is different. Do you have non-sinful circumstances? They're just making you really vulnerable. You didn't sin in this case. You just have circumstances in your life, and you feel really vulnerable. You've got health stuff that isn't immediately apparent, but it really affects your life. Or there may be health stuff that's apparent. It's affecting your life. You've got financial pressures every single day. You have financial pressures. And you feel really vulnerable. You are unable to make friends, close friends. 
You hide it. Not everybody knows it. But it actually makes you really vulnerable. Do you understand that in the kingdom of God, it's these circumstances that are actually your way in through the narrow door? It's the opposite of the elitism of this world. The opposite. You don't have to pay anything to get in. You have to pay everything to get in. You don't have to pay anything to get in financially. You have to pay everything to get in. What? Your whole life, your whole person. That's the heart of striving. It's so beautiful. He, there's a story told right before this. I can guarantee you, Luke put, Luke put the story right before Jesus teaching the narrow door of a disabled woman. She's disabled. She's physically disabled. In this case, she's disabled by a demonic power. And what Luke is saying is, this is a lastness person. This is who gets into the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. It might even be that in this journey of Lent, and maybe this is the first time you've journeyed Lent intentionally, that you've been feeling worse, not better about yourself. That would be very Lenten. That happens to me all the time. Maybe the things you set out to do, you're not meeting those goals. Or maybe just for some reason, you're more vulnerable, you're more fragile, you're more sensitive than you've been before. That very likely could be the work of the Holy Spirit to bring you into lastness so you can come into the narrow door. Or maybe, maybe it isn't a presenting symptom. Maybe it's just this bottom line reality that every one of us have a deep human heart of sin. At one point, the Anglican prayer book says this, acknowledge your wretchedness. That may sound archaic and over the top, but it's actually really helpful for me with the level of my sin. I'm wretched in my sin, in myself, curved in on myself. I am wretched. And I need to be told to acknowledge my wretchedness. That's the cardinal sin. That's the deep, deep reality. That's the reality of pride and the reality of rebellion that is in with every single one of us. But do you know that not even that disqualifies you from the kingdom of God? But when you come to that and you recognize that and you realize that and you repent of that, that's your way in. It's so contrary to how we're taught to think that we need a behold. We need a revelation from God. I love this 19th century English preacher Spurgeon said this, be content to be nothing for that's what you are. When your own emptiness is, for, is painfully forced upon your consciousness, and this is a great phrase, when your own emptiness, your own lastness is painfully forced on your consciousness. I went through a debilitating illness for three months after being in Nigeria, November, December, and January. This illness led me into procedures that were ultimately humiliating and incredibly painful. And I had my emptiness painfully forced upon my consciousness. I wondered if I'd ever be able to preach again, if I could ever even stand up for a half an hour again. My weakness was so acute. The procedures, so difficult. When your own emptiness is painfully forced upon your consciousness, chide yourself that you ever dreamed of being full except in the Lord. Okay, so the door is narrow. And yes, in a way, the kingdom of God is exclusive. Let's be clear. It's the exclusivity of the humble and the hungry. It's the league of lastness. You know what the song of lastness is? That's what we sang this morning. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. That's what the people of lastness sing. 
That's what you sing as you're going in the narrow door. And oh, what a chorus that is. All those voices of lastness, all those folks looking at each other going, you too, you too, you're desperate as well. So what are we going into through this narrow door? That's what Jesus finishes this text. He says, you're going into the kingdom of God. It's a feast. People will come from the east and the west, verse 29, and from the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. He leaves us with a picture of where we're going. What are we striving for? We're striving for the kingdom. It's a picture of a feast that's throughout the Old Testament prophets. It's a picture of an absolute party. It just says reclining at table, and that is a picture of a massive and glorious feast. It's going to be such a good feast. It's going to be the feast that we've waited a lifetime for. I just started, when I read this passage a few weeks ago, I started imagining what this feast would be like and, and what it would be like. And I can be assured, coming from the finest of Chicago, that there will be Chicago hot dogs with celery salt at this feast. I'm looking for a Nigerian moi moi. Can I get an Amen. Huh? Vietnamese pho, Brazilian shuhasku, where my wife is from, African-American soul food. How about some German sauerkraut? Mm. Enchiladas. And there will be so much pie. <laughs> cake. Nah, there won't be cake. Pie. Fruit pie. There's going to be Jews. And there's going to be Gentiles. There's going to be Africans. There's going to be Asians. They're going to be North and South Americans. They're going to be Europeans and Arabs. They're going to be the fatherless. They're going to be widows, disabled, immigrants, refugees, suburbanites, maybe even some of those kids who thought they got into Yale on their own merit and just found out in this expose article that that never, ever happened. They have no place there at Stanford, and they may just be there as well. As a matter of fact, maybe Rick Singer will be there, the guy that ran this whole thing, who when he went before the court said, I am totally and completely guilty. Everything you've said that I've done, I've done, and more things. Maybe, just maybe, Singer will be there. Maybe, just maybe, all of us who have that moment where we go, oh, my word, this is humiliating. And the emptiness of my own soul has been painfully forced upon my consciousness. It's there. It's them. It's us who will come into that narrow door, who will enter the exclusivity of lastness, of humility, and of those who are hunger. When you come into the narrow door, it's not really a door at all. It's Jesus himself. He's the door. When you come into the narrow door, for those of you that think that somehow it's an A+, plus, it's a perfect ACT score, there's no A. Strike the A out. Take a look at that plus and extend that vertical bar. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the narrow door. And we're going to Jerusalem, brothers and sisters. That's where we're going. And every single person that says, I need help. God, I need you in some way. I am vulnerable and fragile. We're all going together. Amen. And I want in. I want in to that league. I want to sing that song. I want to be with Jesus at the feast. That's where we're heading. That's what he's doing. Behold, there are some who are last. They're going to be first. And there's some who first. They're going to be last. They're going to knock, and the Lord's going to say, I, I don't know where you come from. And the door is shut. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.